I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take one big story in the news that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner with Gould Evans, and today I am joined with Chuck Marone, founder of the Strong Towns organization. How goes it, Chuck? Hey, going great. The week we're recording this is seems like it should be January when you look outside because we have thick snow and more snow coming down and blizzards, but it's October and it's very disorienting. I'm one who likes winter, but I like winter during winter, not necessarily during fall. So (laughs) it's very strange. Well, it went from summertime weather to almost winter, almost December weather here. So yeah, we're getting a little bit of similar changes and fluctuations in the weather right now. So not not ideal. I like the fall as well. I like the the bright colors and the the sunshine. So hopefully we get some of that in the coming weeks. Yes, a reprieve. So our article today was published in Politico and written by Katie O'Donnell entitled The Next Economic Crisis, Empty Retail Space. The author describes how the hotel and retail market, which together make up 40% of the commercial mortgage-backed securities market, has continued to see decline due to lockdowns mandated by governments during the pandemic. With little hope for lawmakers passing a federal stimulus support bill, we can expect a ripple effect as loan carriers default on payments. A number of commercial loans have been packaged into securities going into special servicing. Potential loss of payments could impact everything from shopping centers to apartment buildings, as well as the 87% of public pension funds and 73% of private pension funds that hold real estate investments. Strong Towns has been talking about the continuing obsolescence of our overbuilt big box shopping hubs around the country for some time now. I've witnessed this in many places prior to the coronavirus, and I'm wondering what your take is on this, Chuck. Do you think that we are going to see a retail-oriented economic crisis? Yeah. We've actually written about this on the blog a lot. Talked about this for some time. I remember back in, it was probably 2005, when I read this study and it said the United States has six times the amount of retail space per capita compared to any Western European country. So basically the places with the closest level of consumptive patterns to ours, we have six times per capita the amount of retail space. And the conclusion was two things. One, we just buy a lot of stuff you know, that we don't need. And two, we have a ridiculous amount of retail This was 15 years ago. I remember at the time that I read this, that there was a strip mall being built on the outskirts of Baxter, Minnesota, which Baxter is the the neighboring city to Brainerd. Brainerd, where I live, is the old railroad town and Baxter is the new suburban place. So Baxter has Walmart and uh, Target and Costco and Home Depot and all the uh, fast food chains and all that is on the strip in Baxter. And there was a new strip mall going in on this strip about the time I read this report. And I remember thinking that this this strip mall was really bizarre. Like, do we need another one of these? 
it finished up in about 2007 and it has sat empty ever since. This was a huge strip mall. I mean, probably 20, maybe 25 different bays. And some of them have been open. You know, some of them have clients coming in and out or tenants coming in and out. Um, But for the most part, it's been pretty vacant space. In the last six months, and I, I mean, this is a bizarre thing when you think about what we've gone through. In the last six months, not only has this thing filled up, but next door, they are building an even bigger strip mall. And I look at it, I'm like, I can't, you know, the things that have filled up in there are all like, you know, that we got a Subway now, we got a new Verizon store now. They're nothing that like is going to be here to stay or is like some type of institution or some type of permanent thing. It's hard for me to not look at this anecdotally and tie it into this overall just disaster we see in the financial markets around commercial real estate. And this massive bubble that we have created, we have artificially created as a way to kind of juice our economy, wreaking just real havoc on the ground in terms of the businesses that get space, in terms of the types of things that have opportunities, and and in terms of just you know this 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 building of stuff that really has such low value and low utilization, just so we can keep building. I think we're in for a disaster in the commercial real estate market. So can I just say something that frustrates me a little bit when I read titles like this? And you can tell me if I'm off base here. But when we talk about the future of retail, I feel that these discussions don't differentiate between the role of retail and other commercial industries based on the context that they're in. For example, we have many places in this country that were built around a development model that is primarily focused on supporting car access between subdivisions and commercial retail centers. This is the quintessential post-1950s model of suburbia. These places have acres and acres of land dedicated to big box and strip retail centers, and they're surrounded by parking, and then those are surrounded by subdivisions. The value of that pattern is that it provides convenient access for the consumers living in surrounding subdivisions, driving to retail destinations to buy the things that they need. And that's retail and housing as a model that is primarily based off of convenience and efficiency in my mind. I look at it the reverse, Abby, actually. I think there's like a chicken and egg argument here, and I don't dispute where you drop into the narrative. But for me, like I go back and I look at the 1950s and 1960s original subdivisions and they were very, you know, mixed use. They were very much, it was kind of like, we're going to continue a building pattern, but we're just going to have it be a little bit more spread out, bigger yards, ranch houses, but we'll have, you know, neighborhood grocery stores and we'll have neighborhood retail. And, and I, I used the word for you on Slack earlier, this parasitic kind of thing that came in. I feel like, you know, the story of McDonald's is one of recognizing where the infrastructure we had built to facilitate this housing boom worked really well when you inserted this this thing onto it that could sell hamburgers. I feel like that's what the malls recognized, right? Like we could insert this thing onto this thing that was built for something else. We could in a sense become a parasite and like latch ourselves onto this system and position ourselves in a way that economically would be very advantageous. 
to me, that was the big box stores. And it's why the big box stores did not happen in the 50s and 60s, but really took until the late 70s and the 80s to really catch on because they were like the next, the system had to evolve to where that like new parasite could show up and sweep the system and, and become viable. We did, as you say, we built the system to facilitate the residential development. But I feel like the commercial has always been like the next wave adapter to that, right? Like taking the systems we built and in a sense, grafting onto them a commercial model. I think your frustration is valid, but I, I maybe want to put that nuance on it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's an important distinction because the the suburbs that I'm picturing when I'm thinking through this are not the first ring suburbs. They're the second ring, the third ring suburbs, the ones that were built in the 90s and on where the anchor is really the big box model. It's not the neighborhood grocery store. It's not the the walkable neighborhoods that you see in these first ring suburbs. It's the it's the later suburbs that were really built to do and you know it's a, it's the type of suburb I I grew up in frankly and it and they provide convenience and I think that they're becoming obsolete over time because all the people living in those surrounding subdivisions have found something that is more convenient than car oriented commercial shopping centers and that's online shopping that gets quickly delivered to your doorstep Amazon has disrupted that model because it provides an even more convenient way of obtaining goods that we did not see coming. And everything that is not a service or a drive-through is now, in my mind, at a major risk. And during coronavirus, we we are seeing that the most stable retail model is drive-throughs because drive-throughs provide a different product than Amazon and that it's it's also very convenient. But what strong towns often refers to as the traditional development pattern or places that were built before the prominence of driving in our society, the role of retail continues to be different in some ways, I think. That certainly doesn't mean that urban retail is thriving, but people living in more traditional neighborhoods often interface with businesses in a different way because of the development pattern. Commercial businesses are arranged around a place. They're a neighborhood that people live in, and people that live in this neighborhood do not necessarily have to drive to every commercial destination, and those that drive there are not necessarily choosing to go to these centers because of convenience. There are other drivers for why people go to these places far beyond convenience. So I think that the urban commercial areas that have a strong residential base of customers supporting them are likely to have a better off chance in the long run than those that don't. I mean, I'm, I'm curious what you think about that. I feel like this model's continuing to evolve, and I actually feel like it, it's ending up where it started. So you had neighborhoods with commercial in them, and then over time, as I described this parasite coming in, the strip malls, the, the McDonald's franchises, the malls, then the big box stores and that whole revolution. Now we're building, as you suggest, now we're building these places anchored off the parasite, right? Like what was once the thing that grafted onto the system, the system's now evolved to essentially prop that up and make that the centerpiece. I agree with you. I feel like there's a couple of dynamics coming together here. And the one is the financialization of this and how it has induced a certain physical overbuilding. 
And that physical overbuilding is independent of this other phenomena, which is the online, you know, the Amazon online shopping phenomena where you you don't actually need to go to the store. They're both intersecting. And I think people latch onto one or the other as like the the quick, easy explanation. And I, I think it's more complex. You, you weren't doing that, but I, I just want to make that clear. When we look at this, to me, what we have done is we have created a system now by focusing on the convenience, as you as you call it, we've actually created this situation where it's more convenient for Amazon and online retailers to provide us the stuff in our neighborhoods than it is for us to go to their locations and partake in that. I even, when I broke my foot this summer, in Brainerd, Minnesota, of all, I used DoorDash. Like, I didn't know we had DoorDash. And I found out we did. And I'm like, I can't. I can't go any place. And I was had a period of time where my family was all gone and I was sick of eating the cereal that I had in the cupboard. And so I ordered from DoorDash. I'm like, this is ridiculous. I never have to go anywhere again. You have these things. And I think what it's doing is it's taking the, the system that's been made very fragile from financialization as overbuilt. And it's actually just accelerating that uh, financial crunch because these places are un- largely unnecessary now. I think the interesting thing is going to be when we actually get to the next phase, which I think is understanding that living by yourself in a sheetrock palace in a suburban cul-de-sac is not really that redeeming. And sure, you can get things delivered to you there and you can live in that little cocoon, but people do need you know, human habitat. They need parks and they need neighborhoods and they need other things. And I think once there's a realization, you can see it in larger cities where there's already this, that you can live in these neighborhoods and have a very high quality of life that you know used to be the exclusively of the suburbs, but now is almost becoming exclusive of urban areas. Will we start to make space for neighborhood commercial or will it still be you know delivered to the warehouse out on the edge and then have it the last mile done by smaller delivery into town? That's basically like the old model of doing things as coming back. Well, it's interesting to think about how these spaces could be adapted in the future. I think scale matters because 60 years ago, we basically saw a decline in the retail market in urban environments. And in a blighted retail building that takes up a tenth of an acre is much less of an impact than a 20-acre site with vacant storefronts, storage facilities, and a Burlington Coat Factory, which I've been told is the Grim Reaper of big box retail. Oh, really? And that, Yeah, and that's right in the middle of your community. And, and we see that all over the country already. Before coronavirus, we were seeing giant areas of big box shopping centers that are now basically a gap between many neighborhoods. And ultimately, I think, you know, what does the end of retail look like when the failed use not only takes up dozens of acres of land, but has also been constructed in a way that is not easily adapted to something else and is quite frankly not meant to last more than 20 years just due to construction quality what you have is a massive piece of developable property in the middle of a community that cities are going to want to reposition eventually if the retail apocalypse continues. The interesting thing is when you're talking about that that neighborhood residential thing that goes away, obviously you have a building that, that can be adapted to many things. And 
you know, ostensibly it had been there for a long time. Businesses fail for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's the the market shifts and changes. In that case, that building could be adapted to something that fit the market better. Sometimes it's, you know, that the person has mismanaged the business, in which case like something else could come in and run it. There's a bunch of different reasons. When that Burlington Coat Factory goes out of business, or like the one I pointed out here, you know, we have uh, Tim Hortons that came in. Tim Hortons uh, was open for a couple of years and then just closed. It went away and it's sitting vacant. It's been vacant for a couple of years now. What is that going to become? It, it's a Tim Hortons. It's not like that thing's going to become anything else. We have a JCPenney, a big, huge, big box store out on the, in Baxter, out on the, uh, you know, the far outskirts of town. That is closed now. It's been closed for a long, I mean, I want to say 18 months, 24 months. What is that going to become? There really is no natural use progression for these buildings. Once the Tim Hortons has been shown to not be successful as a Tim Hortons, you know, what use that could use that building and that parking lot and that configuration is going to be viable. It's built to be a restaurant, like a drive through restaurant, you know, Brainerd residents don't buy donuts in sufficient quantities and they will buy what tacos, uh, hamburgers, you know, like what, it's not like it becomes a drive-through bookstore or a drive-through clothier or a drive-through haircut place. What's the next iteration? And I, I do think that this is the, the cascading down problem. You know, once this stuff starts to fail, which you can see already, and I think further failure is, is inevitable, there really is no viable second life for it without intense amount of capital investment. And this gets into the suburban retrofit people. And I've, I've said, I wrote in my book, I think they're brilliant. I think they do brilliant designs. I think they have no sense of economics. And yeah, if the Federal Reserve is going to continue to have poor liquidity into the market and give people who do commercial real estate investments bizarre amounts of funding at like ridiculously low rates or negative rates, effectively, we may be able to induce some redevelopment of some of these places. But in a normal market condition, I don't see that happening. And I see a lot of these places just going away and having, you know, the asteroid belt on the outside of town just look like a scene out of an apocalypse. Yeah. Well, 70 years ago, we were introduced to a new technology that completely reshaped the way our society functions called the motor vehicle. In the U.S., we committed wholeheartedly to this unanticipated technology, and we built entire communities and regions around moving by car with very little long-term financial accounting for how we were going to support all that new infrastructure. And at the same time, we abandoned our urban centers. And I think now we are experiencing another disruptive technology. Actually, we're probably experiencing lots of different disruptive technologies, but the most relevant to this discussion being online shopping, Amazon, which essentially is centralizing more the way that we obtain goods in our society. And where Walmart was kind of one phase of market consolidation that many businesses couldn't compete with, Amazon is this era's version of that. So the question is whether we can learn to be disciplined when unanticipated disruptions occur. And 
what happens if these existing retail spaces become devalued? I think the reality is that these areas will be repositioned over time for maybe other uses, and the physical scale of in-person retail will likely need to contract if it is to survive. The remaining land could become new subdivision or or it could become distribution centers for online shopping, um, depending on the context and the financial capacity. And, you know, I think that some of these shopping centers might face a destiny similar to the old neighborhood corner stores that continue to send empty today. Yeah. I started with saying we have six times the amount of retail space per capita than Western European countries, you know, 15 years ago, I think that gap has only increased. I think the reality is that we have overbuilt, we built more than we need. And so if we find that we need less, let's, let's say we're going to continue to consume just as much, but we need less space because we actually need less retail floor space because the floor space is moved online. I can now look at products on my phone. I can now you know, shop that way. I actually, I, my wife doesn't listen to this podcast, but my wife is one of these people who likes to buy clothes, but like never will shop for herself. She always goes clothes shopping and winds up buying stuff for the kids and not herself. So my kids and I got her one of those trunk things where they send you, you know, clothes every month and she doesn't know yet, but she's going to be getting that as a gift at some point. You know, you look at that and like you don't need the retail floor space. You don't need to go walk through aisles and have an end cap and have, you know, preferred pricing for things on the eye level shelf and less preferred pricing, you know, for placement for things on the bottom shelf. That, That whole system goes away. And therefore, all you need is a warehouse. You know, you literally just need, I mean, I can see Target and Walmart becoming just a distribution box. If that becomes the case, we don't need half or more of what we've built. I mean, it just, it becomes worthless. It, it doesn't have any value or meaning. It's, it's literally not needed, even with the same volume of consumption. And I, and I think the volume of consumption will go down too. So where does, mathematically, it gets you to a place where it doesn't work. I feel like this article was getting in the financial part. The financial part is the cascading part. You know, that's, once you stop propping this up, I think it collapses very quickly. And, and th- that's why we're so desperate in how we prop it up. Well, and, and how would people feel if the 50 acres of shopping center in their community suddenly became a distribution site, a much more kind of industrial use that you don't actually go to? I think that that will be an interesting thing to see. It's kind of something that I expect will happen in the future as retail, in-person retail becomes obsolete. I think we can end it there today. And I'm sorry for for having such a negative <laughs> article during such a um, anxious time in our country. So not, not to add fuel. <laughs> no, it's snowing outside. We're entering into the, the Christmas shopping season. I'll, I'll give you a little view into my life. I am one of these people who spends uh, most of December doing baking. And I, it's kind of like one of these end of the year traditions in my family. And I have picked it up and I, I really like the relaxing time, you know, the doing this kind of solitary activity. And then there's a lot of joy that goes with sharing 
during that period of time, one of the things that I really get annoyed with is shopping. Like I, I don't like to take time away in December and go run around and buy gifts for people. So I tend to do my Christmas shopping early. I am probably three fourths of the way done with the gifts that I intend to buy for people. And I've done that shopping exclusively online. I think that that probably makes me pretty normal for 2020. If we went back 20 years ago, that was, you know, freakish, like nobody did that. So yeah, I think just in looking at the evolution of this, it might be a hard truth and a difficult place for us to end a conversation. But, but I think, you know, particularly as we think about our own consumer habits here in this fourth quarter and how we are going to shop for gifts and what have you towards the end of the year, as, as we traditionally do, our habits are changed a lot. To think our built environment wouldn't also change, I think is, is, you know, more than wishful thinking. Yeah. Hard pills to swallow, definitely. Yeah. But, but I think it's something that we need to be cognizant of because retail is changing. We've been, I, I feel like we've been talking about this for as long as I can remember, certainly as long as I've been uh, <laughs> practicing, probably since I was a kid, people have been talking about the end of retail. So it's something that I think we as a society are going to have to be looking at and actually accepting because we're changing our consumer habits. So our built environment is going to contract in that way. Well, and the fact that it is obvious and it's obvious that we've been talking about this for a long time as a society, as a culture, as a planning practice, and it's obvious to the retailers as well, but we're still building it tells you everything you need to know about how screwed up our financial system is. Yeah, that's like crazy time. So yeah, yeah, I feel like we could go into a whole episode about the financial aspects of why we continue to build even when we need to contract. But yeah, I, I think we'll leave it there. And before I let you go, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything we've been listening to, reading, watching, or just anything that's been captivating our time lately. Chuck, what have you been up to this week? I actually interviewed this week a gentleman named Blake Pagenkopf. He wrote a book called The Structure of Political Positions. He'll be on the Strong Towns podcast in a couple of weeks, the, the week after the election, actually. I find his analysis of the left-right paradigm and, and how we can expand it to actually include what I think is a more accurate description of our political dialogue is, is right on and very exciting for its implications. So... I highly recommend his book. I read the whole thing in 45 minutes and probably spent 10 times that thinking about it. And to me, that's a great book, right? Yeah. Well, I'll be looking forward to listening to that. That'll yeah. come out the, the week of the election? The after the election. Yeah. I wanted, to, I wanted it to come out after the election because I want people to be, to hear it with open ears, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, next on my radar is actually a book you mentioned last week called The Myth of Capitalism. I haven't started reading it yet, but just wanted to put that out there. I, that sounded like a really interesting read, and I'm going to be I'm going to be getting that pretty soon here. This week, you know, the cold weather in Kansas City has been sneaking up on us. Earlier it was we were in the 40s and then yesterday we were suddenly in the 80s and it was humid and now we're back to it being cold and rainy. So considering coronavirus is presumably going to continue to be an issue for us this winter, I'm preparing for ways that I can stay active and get outside. I've 
have noticed I am sadly unprepared for wintertime biking, and I'm looking into gear that will keep my hands and face warm uh, for riding this winter. And I'm also looking into getting bike lights. I know I should probably already have bike lights, but I don't have them. And the sun's going to go down earlier in a couple of weeks, so I need to get some of those so I can go biking at night. And I'm also trying to find ways to make my house more energy efficient. Uh, We've got an old house with a good range of different windows, and I'm noticing that some rooms don't stay warm as well as other rooms. So I'm kind of gearing up for winter. I, I think... Anybody who's listened to this show probably knows I'm not a big winter person, (laughs) and I know I'm talking to somebody from Minnesota, and you guys have crazier winters, but I'm I'm like a a warm weather person, so I I enjoy the warm seasons. So I'm going to send you a picture of my garage, because I I have to tell you, every fall I get this, it's like instinctual, it's like this thing goes off my brain, it's like prepare for winter, prepare for winter, and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that usually manifests in me doing two big things. One, cleaning up the yard, you know, like getting the plants put away. And like I, my office is full of my statues now from the yard. But the other part is getting the garage in order, uh, getting the bikes, you know, up and, and all the summer stuff put away and the winter stuff ready to go, the snowblower ready. So I will send you a picture of my garage so you can see, like I've got the wood stacked. I've got the chairs folded. I've got like everything ready to go. I'm very proud of it. It's it's one of those feelings of, okay, like bring on winter, just not this soon. That's a very Minnesota picture uh-huh. that is. you put into my head. <laughs> it is. It is. John Anderson once told me, he goes, what you're doing right there, that's why some people commit suicide. Um, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. John, John is, John can be a little gruff at times, but he's like, you know, Chuck, it's this constant, like getting ready for the next season. And he's like, you don't need that. Like move somewhere else, move somewhere less, less like that. And I'm like, no, I, I really like it. It's like a time clock for me, you know? Yeah. John's got a nice dark sense of humor. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining me today, Chuck. And thanks everybody for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Take care.